Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Well, I'm so excited to be talking to you. This is our first long-distance recording session in a while. We're in we both moved to, to different places. <laughs> yeah, we did. And you know, moving is just awful. Like I, I can't stand it. I hope I never move again. Anything else exciting happen to you this week? Nope. All right, that is good news, I suppose. Well, anyway, we have uh, some things to discuss. In uh, we're going to be in Doctrine and Covenants section 98 to 101 but before we go ahead and jump into that i want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the dialogue podcast network a collective of independent interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful respectful and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the lds tradition thought arts and culture find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network that's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network Okay, so like I said, Doctrine and Covenants, sections 98 to 101. These sections basically cover the persecution of the saints in Missouri. By the time we get to section 101, Joseph Smith has uh, received the news of the saints' exile in Missouri. Saints had been mobbed, their press had been destroyed, and uh, Joseph seemed to expect that the, uh, that the law would protect them, but such wasn't the case. Joseph was understandably confused and sad about the news, and he uh, asked questions that any of us would ask, I think. The Lord had brought the saints to Jackson County and told them to consecrated as Zion, a place of uh, gathering and a, and a place of uh, refuge. So why was God allowing them to be driven from what the Lord had told them was their inheritance, their promised land? Joseph had uh, basically by this point asked the Lord to, to return the people to Zion and destroy their enemies. And then the Lord responded about a week later with section 101, but uh, not quite the way that uh, Joseph wanted. Section 98 is uh, initial response to that persecution. But by the time we get to 101, we're going to get to a, to a lot more of what the Lord has to say about the why of the persecution, the why of the exile, you know, how the Lord wants them to respond to it and how he wants them to think about it. Uh, do you have anything to add in terms of uh, the historical context or uh, what we're going to be reading in these sections? Not yet, but I think I will end up comparing what happened in Missouri with World War One because there are significant differences. Okay. But we'll get there. Okay. So then, let's go ahead and jump into uh, section 98. I wanted to ask you a question, Derek, about these first few verses because, uh, again, this is a time of trial for the saints, but I was wondering if there was to be a significance to these, uh, to these first few verses, particularly these instructions that the Lord gives in the face of affliction. He uh, begins in verse 1 saying, Let your hearts be comforted, rejoice evermore, and in everything give thanks. And then in verse 2, exhorts them to patience, saying, Waiting patiently on the Lord, for your prayers have entered into the, into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth and are recorded with the seal and testament. So I just wanted to know if you had any thoughts on uh, the Lord's injunction to rejoice and display gratitude. You got any thoughts about that? Right. Well, here Joseph Smith is borrowing language from the New Testament in several places, stitching them together to find language to express what he feels the Lord is inspiring him to say. There's the fear not, there's the, the let your hearts be comforted from John. There's rejoicing and giving thanks in every situation from Paul. Uh, there's the Lord of Sabaoth from Isaiah. By the way, Sabaoth is the, a word that means heavenly armies or angel armies. So I think that is significant in this military context. Mm. That the Lord is this defender and protector of the Lord's people. I 
but the main thing about religion is um, meaning making. Like, how do you make meaning out of real world events? And I think we see in 98 and also in section 101, the saints making meaning out of something that otherwise would seem to prove that this was not of the Lord. Like, whoops, everything's falling apart. Maybe the Lord isn't doing this. But mm-hmm. we have a different way of processing it here in these sections. All right. And when we talk about uh, that processing, is uh, like is these injunctions to patience, is this uh, commandment to be grateful or to give thanks is that part of this uh is that part of this meaning making right because i think it allows the people especially if you go back to what paul says in romans 8 about that god works everything for good for us that allows you to handle these events responsibly and without retaliation with patience now here we're we're gonna have a little bit of a a conflict of our ideals because I'm a very much a committed pacifist yeah. and I'm always going to be on the side of non-violence, non-resistance, non-retaliation, right? Uh-huh. So I think that's something that I find centered in the life and teachings of Jesus in the Gospels and that's my touchstone for everything. I use Jesus to help me clarify what the DNC is about rather than the other way around. I mean, some people will look at the militarism that we see later in section 98 and say, oh, that's what Jesus is all about. But I love the clear picture that we get of Jesus in the New Testament. And of course, Jesus never kills anyone in the New Testament, right? Mm -hmm. So that's my model. And in fact, he's willing to suffer violence rather than enact it on someone else. Right, right. We've got some interesting tension here in the text because in verse 16, it says, therefore renounce war and proclaim peace. Now I like that. Here I am cheering that on. I love the idea of renouncing war and proclaiming peace. But later on in section 98, we've got these exceptions that say, well, in terms of self-defense, in terms of if people have attacked you three times, like there's gonna be times where you should fight back. Now, of course, as a pacifist, I'm going to have a problem with that. You're probably much more understanding of that position than I am. Oh, absolutely. I really do not see a problem with giving people three opportunities to repent or to stop raising their hand against you before, you know, the Lord, in essence, delivers them into your hands. I don't have a problem with self-defense. In fact, I think it's necessary. We saw that in the Book of Mormon where the Lord seemed to sustain uh, the likes of Captain Moroni, Gideon, and you know others who were who only entered war, not start war, but entered war for the sake of protecting their freedoms. Like I don't I don't see the problem with that. Well, we probably don't have the time to. And I think it's okay that we are coming at this from different angles and different perspectives. I'm not here to uh start a big argument about this Uh because I think we're both getting at different core pieces of what's already in the scriptures and it's complicated because the scriptures don't speak with one voice on anything Uh you're going to have diversity of message tone content uh, in the scriptures you're going to have diversity of doctrine in the scriptures Uh so what do we do this goes back to my primary analogy of the pharmacy that you have to be skilled and wise and experienced in all of these drugs, which have contradictory effects. Like one drug will do one thing and the other drug will do the opposite. And people will say, oh no, there's a contradiction in the pharmacy. But yeah, it's about dispensing the right dose of the right medicine at the right time. And I think Mm -hmm. that's where the spirit comes in when we interpret the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Some people are gonna focus on certain texts and we see this with oppression some people are going to be able to find certain verses but then other people are going to find other verses and which one do you let lead right and i go back to the life and ministry of jesus as the center piece of clarifying all these other things and um let me just go through some of the real quick 
verses that I hold dear around nonviolence in the scriptures. Okay. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 38 and 39, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Uh, verse 44 in the same chapter love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you Romans 12 19 never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord verse uh, and then we've got in Matthew 26 Jesus said put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword do you not do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels but how then should the scriptures be filled that it must be so? John eighteen thirty six, my kingdom is not of this world. First Peter three nine, do not repay evil for evil. Um so yeah, that's kind of oh, there's many more verses I could could pick, mm -hmm. but that's the touchstone of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I want to think about this in terms of what pa Patrick Mason reads between the lines of the Book of Mormon text because the Book of Mormon obviously has a lot of war in it. But Mason's <laughs> yeah. thesis is that the war in the Book of Mormon never does what it promises. It promises an end to war. It promises that by violence we can get rid of violence. It promises that war will lead to lasting peace. But only war leads only to more war. If everyone feels the right to retaliate, you've got an endless loop of violence and we see this let's look at afghanistan let me back up and say there's a swiss theologian named karl bart a reformed theologian who um may have said this this is attributed to him i can't actually find it anywhere in his works but it's attributed to karl bart and he allegedly said we need to preach with the bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and that's exactly what I'm thinking about when we're putting DNC 98 in dialogue with Afghanistan, okay. right? We have in America the most resourced army that has ever been assembled or funded in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And we spent 20 years in Afghanistan. You would think like after 20 years could get something done, right? Mm -hmm. But our I shouldn't say are because I don't support I don't support war, right? But the United States' activities in Afghanistan didn't do what they promised. Mm -hmm. It is very clear that war does not do what it promises. And it turns out that God, of course, can work good through any evil. And I think uh, as much as I detest war, there are some good things that God was able to work out of the Civil War and World War II, but I still don't think that war in general is a God-pleasing thing, mm -hmm. but that God is just skilled enough to make some good come out of it. Mm -hmm. And we'll see this in, uh, did you happen to see this piece by President Joseph Fielding Smith from 1914 that I posted? I don't think so. Okay. Well, it's very interesting. Let me pull that up. All right. I posted this as a comment to a uh, one of my own posts in the restoration table. And so here we have 1914, significant year, just a few months after the start of the World War One, which was the war to end all wars, which clearly did not happen. Correct. In fact, so much of World War One, Israel-Palestine, all this other stuff of World War II, uh, Afghanistan today, comes back from the way we drew the lines after World War I. And basically the same fight is, in, in a sense, continuing, and the effects are ongoing from World War I even to today. But here's what it says. Um, so this is from 1914, the Improvement Era, and this is what Joseph Fielding Smith says. One thing is certain, the doctrine of peace by armed force held to so long and tenaciously by czars, kings, and emperors is a failure and should without question forever be abandoned. It has been wrong from the beginning. That we get what we prepare for is literally true 
in this case. For years, it has been held that peace comes only by preparation for war. The present conflict should prove that peace comes only by preparing for peace, through training the people in righteousness and justice, and selecting rulers who respect the righteous will of the people. Let me go on and find the next piece that I'm going to quote. The Lord has little, if anything, to do with this war. He will overrule things so that good will come out of it, but he will not heed the warlords who have transgressed his laws, changed his ordinances, and broken the everlasting covenant and arrogated to themselves authority which has never been conferred upon them. The true religion of Christ which teaches peace on earth and goodwill to man, and which would prevent them from engaging in war and slaughter, they have never adopted. Okay, I think that's enough. There's, it's, it's worth reading the whole thing, but what's the, what's the title of, of the? Uh, what are the title of the remarks? The title is called "The Great War." And this is Joseph Fielding Smith. Yeah, uh, this is Joseph F. Joseph Smith. F. Smith, The Great War. 1914, yes. All right. So here we have someone basically outlining some version of pacifism, that war doesn't do what it claims to do, that preparing for war, having standing armies, all of this is not in, a, in accordance with what the Lord's ideal is. For of course, us. yeah, yeah. And let's talk about this business about retaliation. I don't know if people are aware of this, but after World War II, there was a group of Jews, a very small group of Jews, and they formed an organization called Nakam, uh, which means retaliation. And their goal was to kill six million Germans as a um, evening the score for killing six million Jews. And they didn't get very far in their plan. Their plan was to poison the water supply of Germany and kill six million Germans. Um, and to me, that doesn't seem like it would solve anything because then we would have 12 million people dead. Right. Right? So... I could go on and on about my approach to pacifism and part of the core of this is how it has been life-giving in my life and how nonviolence and nonviolent resistance has been empowering to me mm -hmm. and has saved me from awful things. Mm -hmm. So th that's kind of my biased investment in this and I don't want to explain all the details of this but that's where I am. What are, do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I have uh, I have several, uh, and I want to first acknowledge the nobility of pacifism and uh, my preference to avoid violence whenever possible to uh, resolve conflicts. War is wasteful; it it hurts and endangers more than just those engaged in it. Um, that said, something I'm wrestling with at the moment is the. Uh, tension between not wanting to hurt anyone and not wanting to let others or myself get hurt. You know what I'm saying? On this show, we've talked many times and cited many scriptures, uh, how they talk about the, the moral responsibility we have to intervene when others are being harmed. Don't stand idly by while your neighbor's blood is shed, and uh, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. The whole of Alma chapter 60, when Moroni chews out Prohoran for not getting them provisions for an actual war that they might preserve their cities and their people. I do think that there's a part of this conversation that is missing, but at this point I'm not entirely sure what it is. Uh, I am against violence and I am for strategic nonviolence. And I also cannot quite reconcile what I understand of pacifism with the need to defend others or for self-defense. Yeah. And I, I have two things. One yes, sir. is about the concept of self-defense. If you look at the propaganda of every warmonger everywhere, they always frame it as self-defense. They always frame it as like, oh, we've got this this threat here. I mean, even if you look at Mein Kampf in 1925, 
Hitler was actually trying to say, we're protecting Germany against the Jews. The Jews are a great threat to us, and everything we're doing is just self-defense. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, like, literally anything, any violence can be framed and packaged as self-defense. Mm. So, uh, we have to be very careful when we say, oh, violence is okay in cases of self-defense, because then who gets to determine that and how and what's all floating around in that big mess? And we do and this intellectually is, as well. Like, we frame. What? I was just saying, we do this intellectually as well. We, pro- we, we propagate violence against certain populations in the name of defending traditional family values. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what, what Holland's thing was all about. He didn't right. say, let's take the muskets and go out hunting. He said, let's take the muskets and defend our whatever it is that we're defending right. against the the enemy that that's threatening us correct but we gays aren't threatening anything except bad interior design mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh you didn't laugh at my joke you said bad interior design yes we are <laughs> we are a threat to bad interior design um <laughs> never mind <laughs> <laughs> i got the joke i did you just didn't you didn't think it was funny oh well i'm sorry it's early <laughs> Okay. Well, maybe later on our audience members will laugh. But the second thing I wanted to say about this has to do with, and I'm sure you're going to talk about this later, but those verses later in section 98 about um, after warnings, then it's okay to retaliate. And I still Why, feel... You use that word retaliate. Why you use that word? Like is every... Well, like is this... Like... Retaliate implies that there that there's an intention behind it that is almost as if to say the intention behind this is simply to inflict pain on those who have inflicted pain on us. Does does retaliate have a deeper definition to you? Well, I think it has to do with responding with the same thing that you are given. If someone is uh-huh. violent to you and you give them what they gave you, that that's kind of what I'm saying is retaliation. Okay. Um. Uh, and and I'm guessing the reason I'm using this is it goes back to what's called the lex talionis, which is the law of retaliation. Yeah, it's the Latin word for the uh, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth thing. Uh-huh. Basically, it's a whatever they did to you, you get to do to them. They they kill you, you kill them. Right. So that is so. This uh, is the law that Nephi got, and that the ancients got in them, because this seems a lot more generous than that. Yeah, this is the no. same law. Yeah. Okay. So what what I want to go back to is my crater from the last time about how it's important not to just to get the content right, but crater is an acronym that stands for content, rationale, audience, tone, emphasis, and rebuttal. So when we look at these verses that appear to support violence throughout the scriptures, and and they are there, how do we interpret them? And we have to look at the rationale. I think the rationale here in DNC uh, uh, DNC 98 that permits uh, responding with, uh, well, I'm not going to use the word retaliation. Whatever you, I don't know what the right word is, but responding with force, okay? Uh Uh-huh. the verses that permit this, you have to realize what's the rationale. The rationale is very limited. It is only to preserve the uh, the lives of the the saints here that are very vulnerable. Right. Right. This is right. So if you stick close to the rationale, you realize that these verses do not support a generic right to war, especially imperial wars where you're like, oh, I just I have enough power that I can go right. and take someone else's resource. Right. Thank you right. for saying that. So you have that. to look at the rationale. Yes, sir. Same thing, you have to look at the audience. This, the audience of DNC 98 was an oppressed people. Right. A right. very small minority, yes, number-wise, power-wise, yes, resource-wise. Yeah. That's the audience. This mm-hmm. isn't given to the kings and emperors and czars at the start of World War One, which right. is exactly what Joseph Smith, Fielding Smith was talking about. Right. This is very different than World War One, where you have imperial powers wanting to colonize the world, wanting to justify their warfare as being of God. Right. Same look at look at the tone in DNC ninety eight. It isn't exactly a 
um, warmongering, nationalistic, uh, violent tone as we see elsewhere in a, in various military propaganda. Like we've got to go and kill these people that we hate, and uh, the tone is very much. Uh, subdued and that should be our tone Mm -hmm. when we talk about these things even when we defend uh, the idea of self-defense and the emphasis we have to look at scripture's emphasis when you look at the emphasis as a whole it is about peace Uh it is about swords into plowshares right right and that gets back to the r of creator which is rebuttal we have to keep into it, keep fresh in our mind everything else that the scriptures say about peace and that's the ideal and all these others verses that serve as a counter to the verses that appear and yeah there's there's a lot of verses in the bible that use military imagery and uh-huh. actual military force to accomplish what the people of god feel is god's purpose for mm-hmm. Them. Mm-hmm. but it goes back to what i was saying is a lot of this is meaning making the people of God are processing what's going on and they feel the need to defend themselves and then they attribute this to the inspiration of God. And I think there's a sad history in what happened with Latter-day Saints in this country. Mm-hmm. I wish we had been more like the peace churches, like the Church of the, Bre- the, Church of the Brethren, the Quakers, yeah. um, and uh, all the Anabaptist groups, including the Amish, the Mennonites, and so forth. Uh-huh. And they are historically pacifist, and we aren't. And this goes back, I think, to what's going on in Missouri. It also goes back to the Mormon Battalion. And the Mormon Battalion, I think, we had a decision, and we decided that it was more important to be American than to be Christian. Mm. Because I think... We wanted to fit in with America, so we did this whole Mormon battalion thing rather than fitting in with Christ who says, take up your cross. But my whole point in all this was to say we have to be very, very careful if you're going to take a a position that supports armed response in certain cases, you have to be very, very careful about all of these factors. Yeah. It is way too easy to abuse what is written here in right. in defense right. of uh, you know what is likely an unnecessary war. Uh, that includes mm-hmm. these these uh, last verses in section ninety eight. Even still, here it says, you know, this law, whatever it is that justifies the war. At the end of the day, this is just something that justifies going to battle. Like the Lord isn't saying you have to go battle the fourth time they offend you. He just says you are justified, which, mm-hmm. you know, lets me know that at the end of the day or at the end of something like this, even at the end of something like somebody coming up against you three times and not repenting, war is still just an option. It's not a necessity, which is uh, something mm-hmm. that's also worth considering. Um, but... Um, you know, I don't think all wars are fought with the sword, even though they are still potentially uh, violent wars, things that cause harm to a lot of people. That that kind of brings me to what I want to talk talk about uh, mm-hmm. by the time we get to the end of section 98. starts about uh, verse uh, 44. We have received uh, this law. And while the Lord is speaking to the saints in the context of them being persecuted, I think this is a fair enough a thi- fair enough thing to apply to something something like uh, race relations in the states, and uh, it'll make sense when I when I read these verses. So we get, mm-hmm. okay. So we get to this law, and now uh, he says, "If he trespassed against thee and repent not the first time, nevertheless thou shalt forgive him. And if he tr- trespass against thee the second time and repent." not nevertheless thou shalt forgive him and if he trespass against thee the third time and repent not thou shalt also forgive him that was verse 43 and then we get to 44 but if he trespass against thee the fourth time thou shalt not forgive him but shalt bring these testimonies before the lord and they shall not be blotted out until he repent and reward thee fourfold in all things wherewith he has trespassed against thee. Now, something that needs to be recognized here. It doesn't say go to war against them. It says, 
don't forgive them. It says, thou shalt not forgive them. Bring testimonies before the Lord of their offense. Doesn't say go against them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So first thing I want to name 45. And if he do this, thou shalt forgive him with all thine heart. So even after this fourth time, if somebody becomes repentant on this fourth time, after you bring a testimony against them, then you shall forgive him. But if he do not do this, still in verse 45, I, the Lord, will avenge thee of thine enemy and hundredfold. 46, and upon his children and upon his children's children of all them that hate me unto the third and fourth generation. That is a strong word to use at this point in time. Like, Right, right. Yeah. All them that hate me. Why would the Lord use the word hate here to describe people that hurt his children? I think that's self-explanatory, but I do want to raise that question because this right. seems to be unusually strong language or to be a bit of a leap. Why does it logically follow that if you unrepentantly hurt God's children, you automatically hate God? Now, I feel like that's a rhetorical question. I feel like now that I say that out loud, the answer should be obvious as to why the Lord would identify people that harm his children as those that hate him. And there is so much application we could extend this to. But basically, I think it is very fair to say that anyone who performs violence against God's children, I think it's fair to say that they hate him. Like, how are you going to be violent to God's children unrepentantly four times and then say that you love God? Like, to me, such a thing is the height of hypocrisy yet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll be careful when I say this. This is a lot of Christians. This is a lot of Christians right now. We, perf we perform incredible acts of violence in the name of Christ unrepentantly. And I don't know that we can say that we love God while we are brandishing his name to perform incredible violence. And then he says right. this, the meaning the avengeance is going to be upon his children and his children's children to the third and fourth generation. And, uh, you know, that's something that I think is mm -hmm. worth exploring. But let me go to verse 47. But if the children shall repent, or the children's children, and turn to the Lord their God with all their hearts and with all their mind, might, mind, and strength, and restore fourfold all their trespasses wherewith they have trespassed, or wherewith their fathers have trespassed, or their father's fathers, then thine indignation shall be turned away. And vengeance shall no more come upon them, saith the Lord thy God. And their trespasses shall never be brought any more as a testimony before the Lord against them. Now, ain't that interesting? The parents, the parents did some stuff. And somehow the children are held accountable for it. Or rather, they're the ones expected yep. to repent and turn to God and mm -hmm. restore, restore fourfold all their trespasses wherewith mm -hmm. they, meaning the fathers, and perhaps the children as well, have trespassed. Exactly. Then shall their indignation be turned away. What do they got to repent of as the children of the offenders? Why would they need to repent if they ain't do anything? Or did they do something? Maybe they inherited hate, or at least lives that reflect that hate, or lives that benefit from that hate. What does that sound like to you, Derek? It sounds like reparation. Yo! You said the secret word, Derek. You yeah, said, said the, word the secret word. Yes. So, like, I, I don't recall seeing this in the Doctrine and Covenants. We, we see this in the New Testament. We see this in the Old Testament with Ezra. But, you know, when it comes to the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, we don't often look at these sacred texts as, you know, like, I, I don't recall seeing anything in the Doctrine and Covenants about reparations, but it's like right here. We see that the children of these offenders are responsible 
for repenting. And again, another interesting word here, because it's not like these children did anything wrong, but the word repent means a lot more than turning away from wrongdoing. It means a deliberate change, a deliberate turn to God, a change with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. Now, I remember having some friends tell me like when they learn about anti-racism, they'll say things like, well, I never knew about this. And I'm just like, well, why would you? How could you? You've never needed to. And I feel like this awareness or this coming into both awareness of racism and proximity mm-hmm. to those directly affected by the injustices of racism, I feel like that is a repentance. I feel like that is a deliberate turn to Christ. Because it is forcing a person to acknowledge the wrongs that their ancestors have done or the wrongs that whiteness has done in general in a way that forces you to reckon with them in a way that you have not been forced to reckon with them before. Because now as the beneficiary and the inheritor of the benefits of white supremacy, it falls on you to undo that. I had one thought about reparations, and I think so much of the way you win or lose the conversation is in the framing because so many people frame reparations as punishment of one person for the sins of someone else and if you frame it that way they win but that is not the right way to frame it let me put it this way and frame it a different way suppose I have a friend named uh, Bob okay and Bob steals money from you and doesn't tell me that this money is stolen, but he's like, Derek, here, have $500. It's free. I'm, I'm transferring this $500 from uh, myself to you, Derek. Okay, so now I have $500. Now, there's a, there's a problem here. I'm going to be asked to return this $500 to you because it was, it was yours and it is yours. It was never mine. Now, why was it never mine? Because that latter transaction, when it was given to me, was not a valid transaction. A valid transaction is when the ownership of something transfers to the ownership of someone else, and he never owned it. It was never his to give away, so it was never mine. Uh, it wasn't mine. So it is not taking away my money when you, because it's not my money. Like people say, oh, I'm being punished with a $500 fine for something someone else did. No. It is not a punishment. I will not feel punished if someone gives me money and I never knew it was stolen, right? But then I find out it was stolen and then I have to give it back. I mean, I'm not going to like giving it back because I could really use $500, but that's not mine. And it's not a punishment for something someone else did because it's not a punishment. And I think what we've got here is 400 years of stolen labor from our black siblings that was never ours to take and um, people have inherited that stolen wealth and it's not really theirs like it's hard to untangle exactly how you would repay the descendants of and it's the same thing like what happens if someone steals from someone else and then it's the second generation right that finds out that that it was stolen Yes, you need to give back the money that was stolen to the heirs of the person it was stolen from because that's their estate and that's where it would have gone. So, yeah, I support reparations. I'm not an expert on how the details logistically of how it works out, but absolutely, um, reparations is not punishment. It is the rightful return. You know, that maybe the marketing is half the battle. I mean, it's not my place to tell people what the what the better word is, but I think reparations now has become contaminated uh, for for all the wrong and unfair reasons as punishment for someone else's sins. And so I don't know the best way tactically of of wrestling with that. But let's talk about tactics because there's two kinds of nonviolence. There's the tactical, Nonviolence, which is strategic, and then there's like the principled um, philosophical value 
of nonviolence. And I think there's times where people who would support violent response in some action, in some cases, can actually look and say, well, in this case, even though I support uh, fighting in self-defense, in this particular case, it's actually more strategic to gain yeah. aims yeah. if we, we take a nonviolent approach. Yes. And I think Dr. King... Uh, was definitely philosophically nonviolent, but he was also strategically. He said, you know what, this in this case is going to actually work uh, more likely than than a, than a, a violent response. And I feel like so the Lord that told that mind. to them as well, to the saints. Like strategically, mm-hmm. nonviolence was definitely better for them. Right, exactly. Especially given the power differential. Yes, yes. Uh, that has to be named, I feel like, a bunch because that power differential just would not have made sense for them to try to retaliate in kind at all. Like, strategically, mm-hmm. it just really seems like nonviolence was their best option. Right. My bad. Didn't mean to cut you off. I, I don't think I had anything else. Oh, okay. Cool. Cool. Then, uh, other than to say, uh, let me just talk a little bit more about framing. <laughs> yeah, let's go. I let's go. Want to? I really wish. Okay, let me just say something about our conservative friends here. All right. They they can do, do things that I can't. They can reach people that I can't. Like no matter how, and I've talked about this before on the on the podcast. No matter what I say about vaccines or masks or any of these other things. There's no way that I could reach conservatives, but conservative moral leaders could have made a big impact in the well-being of our country if the conservative moral leaders would have come out and framed it in conservative values because they love to talk about being pro-life. Well, this vaccine is pro-life. Right. Masks are pro-life. They talk about defending the family. You could frame vaccines and masks as defending your family. Like, I'm going to defend my family against this virus that's blah, blah, whatever. Why do you always right? talk with a southern accent when you, in, when you <laughs> imitate white conservatives? Well, I don't know. But my point is that literally, if they had framed this as we're going to defend the family, and this is an attack on the family, like, they could have won. Mm-hmm. They could, we as a country could have defeated the virus. They could have framed it like, like rations during World War II. So many people were like, you know what? I'm going to give up my gasoline and coffee and sugar and copper so that, that our boys across the sea can have enough to fight the, um, the Nazis and the Japanese, right? And people were willing to make a temporary sacrifice for the greater good of America, Right, mm-hmm. because of their commitment to nationalism. Now, I don't like nationalism, mm-hmm. but our conservative friends could say, "You know what? We need to defend America by willingly taking a glorious sacrifice, just like our." Um, it, it, and it's not just the rations. We sent hundreds of thousands of uh, of soldiers in World War II mm-hmm. to die, to risk death, to make the ultimate sacrifice. And if you had framed, okay, wearing a mask versus giving your life in a war, which one is taking away your liberty? Okay. <laughs> like people say, they can't take away my liberties. Like, yes, but we're asking you to voluntarily make a minor sacrifice that's not at all the same as, as, as sacrificing your life to win World War II. Mm-hmm. But conservative people... We're all on board. Well, basically, all uh, I I just don't understand. Like, if the conservatives had framed this as we're going to fight a war against the virus, we're going to make temporary sacrifices. It's not a denial of your liberties. We we're we're asking people to to do this for the greater good, even though it's a temporary cost, right? Uh-huh. We this is pro life. This is defending the family. Like all this is nationalism we're protecting america right like like literally every conservative value that i can think of you could map onto a reason why we should do masks and vaccines Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the fact that they didn't do that shows the power of marketing and framing Mm -hmm. i want to talk about this parable in a 
section uh, 101. Uh, basically, the Lord gives us another Lord of the Vineyard parable, but he's talking about getting Zion back. That That's basically mm-hmm. the whole theme of the parable. But what he does is he... Um, basically implies that the saints were bad stewards and uh, that's the first thing that made me raise my eyebrows like the parable is all right this nobleman tells these people to take this vineyard uh, take care of it build this tower in it so they might be able to like see when threats come in but then the lords but then the servants in the vineyard are just like we ain't got to do that like who's going to come after us let's just you know take these resources that we got to build this tower and do something else with it and then sure enough uh, after using their money selfishly, they opened themselves up to a tax that basically could have been prevented had they listened to the nobleman. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, then the Lord comes back and he's like, why did you do this? Why didn't you do what I told you to do? You know, and then uh, and then we get to this point where the nobleman gets into his plans for uh, getting, get, 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 getting that vineyard back, um, including getting an army of his servants. And I'm just like, all right, so I'm going to take some of y'all, uh, the strength of mine house, he calls them. And then he says uh, he promises to redeem uh, his overrun vineyard. And then the servants are just like, okay, when's this going to happen? When are we going to get the vineyard back? And then he says, whenever I want go and do what I told you to do. And then we can talk about getting this vineyard back. And after many days, all things were fulfilled is I guess the uh, punchline of the Mm -hmm. parable. But uh, immediately after the Lord goes out of parable mode and then starts talking as if he were the nobleman and tells the saints what they got to do for the redemption of Zion. And basically that comes down to obedience, primarily to uh, sections uh, 86 uh, section 63 and uh, section 57, which basically includes the work of gathering, preaching the gospel, getting converts and uh, pulling resources so that they can uh, purchase land and build Zion. So in considering that Zion has yet to be built, the question becomes, why was it postponed and why is it still not built? What's stopping us? What commandments are we not obedient to? Because it's it's certainly not because of the Lord that Zion isn't built yet. He has all but stated explicitly that Zion doesn't exist because of us. So what exactly do we have to do? What is most urgent for the saints to do that we might build Zion? What's getting in the way of preaching the gospel and gaining converts? Is it even fair to uh, put all of this on us considering that The mob certainly played a role in the postponing of the building of Zion uh, back then. Or is the Lord's implication that we wouldn't have been in Zion building shape anyway, even if he did stay the mobs worth considering in this conversation? I I don't have great answers to these questions. What, What I do know, though, is that Zion can't be built until for sure we reckon with our treatment of those on the margins. We're going to struggle to gain converts there until we do. And that's a problem since that is where Jesus resides. We literally will not find or build Zion without reconciliation with those on the margins. And I believe that to be one of the most urgent and important undertakings our church will engage. Since Jesus is in the margins, we will literally not find Zion. We will not build Zion without reconciling with folks on the margins. Before we end things today, just want to remind y'all that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. Uh, The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has uh, discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Uh, Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, where can people find us, Derek? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Instagram and Twitter at BTBLDS. You can also find us on Facebook. And I want to remind people of the outlines that are available 
at tinyurl.com slash btb outline yes and also want to get mm. some notes from our show there's also the transcript available if you go to the website mm-hmm. and at the top right there's a little clicky downy menu and get the uh, transcripts but then you can also get some notes mm-hmm. and outlines of our episode yes and also want to thank the people who have been putting together our outlines and also these outlines include a uh, you know, not just our work, but the work of uh, our friends uh, Elise and Channing over at The Faithful Feminist, as well as uh, Serena and Katie over at Holy Human. Uh, all of their notes or all of their episodes are compiled in these outlines. So it's a great resource, a great one-stop shop for, uh, you know, all your Come Follow Me needs. I uh, want to say thank you to the folks who are compiling those outlines. Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, uh, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. Also want to send a special thanks to uh, Tamara Kemsley for editing our show and David Doyle for editing the transcripts for us. And also uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with our social media, both in mining the, uh, you know, the best sound bites from our episodes and also in designing our uh uh, our, our new social media, our Instagram posts, uh, you know, just make them look a lot prettier and sexier than they did before. So thank you guys for handling that. Um, as far as events go, uh, that affirmation conference, that's coming up next week, isn't it? Or this weekend as of this airing. Right, right. Yep. Starting September 11th. So when people hear this, it will be later uh, this week. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're speaking on one of the panels, aren't you? Right, I am. I can't remember right now what, when and where this is and what... We'll, you'll find it somewhere. We'll it's find it somewhere, It's the one that's yes. led by Blair Ostler on queer theology. Oh, yes. And uh, that reminds me, book club. How many more, the, how many more of those we got left? So, um, we just have our concluding one with Blair Ostler will be joining us to debrief their book, with the author. So uh-huh. that will be, I think, on September 12th. But I'm not sure. I might have to move the time and date uh, because I think there might be a conflict. But I'll have... Just follow the the Facebook and you'll figure out Yeah, we'll, we'll post something. We'll post something. Uh, anything else we got to put the people on before we wrap up? Uh, nope, that's it. Um yeah, that's it. Wonderful. Thank you all for joining us then till we meet again next week. Okay, later. Bye-bye, everyone.